Hi everyone, greetings. Thank you for joining us on Turning a Moment into a Movement. I am Jay Love and I represent the Justice for Gerard Movement. And we come here every Fridays to talk about wrongful convictions, injustice, racism. I mean, all these things, all the injustices that affects us, our families and our communities. And so thank you for joining us. Um, Gerard, if you don't know, is my son who was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he didn't do. He's innocent, had no knowledge of the crime, and still went to prison. And as we notice with all the exonerations that we see all the time, that these wrongful convictions happen very more often than, um, than um, we discuss. Um, maybe about 10% of the, most of the people are in prison, 10% of those are wrongfully. So we come on here to talk about it because there are so many other Gerards in the world. We want to bring attention to wrongful convictions. We want to let you know that they happen, they can happen to anyone at any time. Anybody can be um, a victim of a wrongful conviction. And so that's why we're here, to educate you, to motivate you, to be a part of this movement, and to bring information to those who are looking for information to be helpful um, so that um, you will have people to contact or just questions to have, but also to motivate conversation with you and your family members and your friends. Because the more we talk about these things that's happening to us, the more um, opportunities we are open to solutions. So thank you for joining us. And I'm gonna bring in the panel and we have an awesome special guest today and an awesome subject. We're gonna be talking about understanding your Miranda rights. So I suggest getting a pencil and paper out because there are so many things we need to know and with summer, within a few weeks away, more of us are be traveling in our cars and most encounters that we have with um, law enforcement actually happens from being inside the car or traffic stops. So get your paper and pencil out um, and follow along with us today. And um, so next I'm gonna bring on the panel members. Reverend Tia, hello. <laughs> oh, you're Reverend Tia, you are muted. <laughs> I am muted. <laughs> you would think I would have this down by now. Oh my goodness. How's everybody on this hot, lovely day? Yeah. I am so excited to be here this evening. And um, I'm coming to you from uh, the Choice Zone, where I help people make choices and get into their zone. And whatever your zone is, let's discover it. Um, also, a part of uh, definitely this panel. This is my uh, go-to all day, every day, because it affects my life and those people whom I love, turning a moment into a movement. And how are you moving today? What is your movement like? And that's, you know, Jay, that's what I've been asking myself every day. 
how am I moving? Am I moving according to what I say and believe? Do my actions line up to my words and my belief system? Mm -hmm. And if you ask yourself that, you, you can't help but take action for those things that are right. So I'm just glad to be here. I'm on different social justice platforms with um, Michigan uh, Social Justice Network, G100 Women, Oneness and Wisdom all over the world. That's national. And um, so indefinitely a minister at Transforming Love Community, where I uh, am a part of a great team of ministers who like using love to help transform lives. I love you guys. I'm so glad to be here. And uh, this is a topic that we need to talk about and take action. I know. I know, Revatia. Thank you for joining us today. I see Attorney Hugo Mack. Hi. How are you? How are you? Good, good. Well, J-Love, don't want to filibuster, but I told you from now time and time again, when I come on, I got to have a, a, a song. Every superhero got a song, but see, okay. you know, you you my superhero. So I just I just want to play a little something for you by a woman by the name of Etta James, you know. Oh, express, okay. express some of my feelings about you, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We love you, J-Love. We love you. Hey, I love you guys, too. <laughs> oh, that's cool. It's time you go. <laughs> okay. So, J-Love, so, yes. with you and Reverend Tia, my lonely days is over and life is like yeah. a song. So, so look, here. look here. I just, I just, I just, I just want to give you all a, a little bit of that. Thank you so much, J-Love. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Introduce yeah. yourself, Attorney Hugo Mack. You know, and, and, and J-Love, I've, I've asked you before, please don't kick me off the show. I'll be good. I'll be no, good. No, you all right. <laughs> I, know, I know I'm controversial. I know people think I'm crazy. I know this. I know this. But, but you know what? If I'm crazy, let it be crazy for righteousness, okay? Right, you know, right. Let, let, let it be crazy for ending systemic racism and cultural bias, you know? And so my name is Hugo Mack. Uh, proud to be with you, attorney at law. Uh, unlike some others in my profession, I did not parachute from heaven to be in this profession, but through the grace of God and Jesus Christ came up from hell, you know, and I proudly advertise myself, hmaclaw.com is your hookup, hmaclaw.com is your hookup. When you find yourself on Trouble Boulevard, park your car on Mac Street, hmaclaw.com is your hookup, you know, and I'm also proud to say only attorney in Southeastern Michigan that have office hours from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I've told you, they love time and time again. <laughs> my clients are the kind of people normal folks walk across the street to avoid. My clients don't drive over fancy bridges. They sleep under them. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. so, so for me, I'm proud to be here. Me and the Black Fedora, you know, been through a lot together. People say, just get rid of it. I can't. It's part of me. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm proud to be here, J-Love, you know, uh, former candidate for Washington County prosecuting attorney, because we need 
restorative justice in our system. We need yeah. to start electing people that, you know, are not trying to say we are colorblind, but color brave. You understand what yeah. I'm saying? Not yeah. colorblind, but color brave. You see? Yeah. So I'm proud to be here. And as long as the good Lord has me here, we're going to keep swinging for the fences for social justice and reform. And as Reverend Tia says sometimes, sometimes it's not about reform. Sometimes it's about tearing it down and rebuilding. Okay? So, I know that's right. So, so whatever we need to do, I'm proud to be with you. You know, you know, God bless you and y'all be safe today. Thank you, Attorney Hugo Mack. I'm so glad you're here as well. So let's bring in our other champion for justice. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you guys? Good. I'm great. Well, I'm, Introduce yourself. I'm feeling great too. My name is Edward Sanders and I go by the name of Baraka. And um, I am um, someone that advocates for um, social justice. I take and try to give a voice to those that may not necessarily have a voice, though I sincerely believe that everyone should use their own voice. But we understand that there are times and circumstances when others are respected of that voice. <clears throat> what I want to say in regards of this program tonight um, in, in terms of uh, Miranda rights, um it is not just simply the right to remain silent but to also be knowledgeable about the fact that the person that reads you that right immediately after telling you that is trained to then take and have you to take and disregard that right so remember that as we take and have this discussion tonight the person that takes and reads you that right has already been trained by psychiatrists psychologists and other mental uh, uh, um, workers to take and have you to give up that very right that they inform you of. So don't be uh, uh, um, fooled that the person that tells you that is somehow your friend. They're not your friend. Their job is, is to make their own job easy. And the only way they do that is that you take and give them a story. The best thing you can ever do when someone reads you your Miranda rights, and not only when they read you your Miranda rights, but when they come in contact with you, say nothing other than your name. Do the same thing that those in war does. They have no duty or responsibility to the enemy other than to give their name and their rank and end the conversation. Do the same thing. All right. Thank you, Edward. And so I want to introduce our guest for this evening, who's going to join us in this conversation. Greetings. Oh, hey, Jay. Hey, everybody. Hey, Hi, Mr. Abdul. Introduce yourself. Um, my, I'm, my name is Abdul Hakim. I'm a paralegal in the Detroit area. I specialize primarily in civil law. A lot of the criminal stuff I do on my own. And um, I'm... I am an activist uh, on some social justice issues, and I have not been as busy with that lately um, because of my full-time job commitment. But um, I, I stay abreast of things and what's going on, and then so I still lend a voice out there um, for uh, justice for um, the right cause. I, I, at least I like to think I do. Yes, thank you. Um, Mr. Abdul for that introduction. So before we even get started, I just want to take a moment of silence for the victims, the people who were 
lost their lives, Buffalo, New York, the other day. Um, I just want to acknowledge them, the, those families, those victims. And I want to just send that area some love and positivity. So just let's take a moment for that, you guys. Okay, thank you. Um, I just want to just touch on it just a little bit. I, it was just a terrible tragedy that happened there. And if you guys want to, you know, um, bounce in, um, talk about just a little bit about what happened. Um, I really don't want to talk about the person too much and give him too much energy, um, the shooter. I think that we have to do more. I heard um, Sean King um, podcast and he was talking about, you know, it's great that the president went there and different people are there and they're speaking to the people and people find comfort um, in that when people come and acknowledge their hurt and pain, whether they're grieving. But also we're going to have to do more to hold our elected officials accountable and he was saying if they if there's no budget, they haven't appointed a person to be in charge of uh, battling um, white supremacy and hate, then they're just giving us talking points. So um, I just think, you know, it, it was terrible. And, and we see how we are surveilled in our communities how so many kids and um, the adults are surveilled and FBI are watching them. They just had something going on with, they was watching some kids for 10 years. And so, you know, I just think there's so much more they can do about this uh, racial hate that's going on in the country that's killing, you know, those people didn't have a chance um, in that <coughs> situation. There was no opportunity for them to do anything. So if anybody want to speak on it, you can go ahead. Well, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Attorney oh, Mack. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, sister. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Attorney Mack, because I, I it, it hurts. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. And what well, well, is that say. the pain? The pain is so deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that that's why it took us a moment because to to hear it over and over again, it it hurts at a core where you can't even watch it. I can't I can't even watch it. And and we have all these excuses of of why. And at some point, you would think we would come to the rationalization that racism is a thing, has been a thing. But somehow we've disconnected the ism and to people, to leadership, to systems. And, and it's ugly and it hurts and having the conversation is going to hurt some people mm -hmm. 
But we keep doing the same thing over and over again. I was telling, talking to Jay about this earlier and expecting something different to happen. That is insanity, she said, by itself. Because we're expecting a change through things that we keep doing over and over again. And not recognizing the difference of how we respond. So if you're not sure if you're walking in a bias or not, you got to ask yourself, am I responding the same way for all people? How do I respond if I'm a police officer? How do I respond if I'm a government official? How do I respond if I'm a judge? How do I respond? And if people can look at the responses of people in leadership and who are supposed to be doing their civic duties, if we could look at Take a look at how are they responding and answer the question, is it the same for all people? And if the answer is no, which most times it is no, 400 years is a long time to learn anything. And at some point, we got to ask ourselves, are we this ignorant? I don't think so. However, we can ask, are we this resistant to change? Yes. Tony Hugo, Matt, go ahead. Well, a few things. Jay Love, I agree 100% with you on not spending a lot of time on this lunatic, but I only reference it in the establishment of a pattern, a repeated pattern. There was a lunatic by the name of Dylan Root who went into a church in South Carolina, premeditatedly killed nine people, okay? Not a scratch on him by police. In fact, taken out to dinner from my, from my, from my recollection, okay? Mm -hmm. You have January the 6th, 2021, storming the nation's capital something that Robert E. Lee himself, the greatest terrorist, I might add, ever experienced by the United States of America, because that's exactly what he is, a terrorist. But yet this man had his statue in Statuary Hall. This man has bridges and schools named after him. He has done more to harm the United States of America than Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Mussolini, Mao Zedong, okay? all put together, you understand? Accountable for more American lives being butchered than all of those criminals put together. So I see once again, in this situation, this man shot and killed a security guard that was trying to defend people, but yet and still mysteriously, mysteriously in all of this, nobody is injured in terms of the perpetrator. Now I'm not advocating killing anybody, anybody dying, but I'm saying it is a continuous pattern, J-Love. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Because I guarantee you, as you all know, had I been part of the people storming the Capitol on January 6th, or people that look like, you know, uh, uh, Brother Sanders, you know, Abdullah and <clears throat> Brother Sam, there would be that many more body bags out there, you understand, unquestionably, okay? 
But you notice there were no body bags for people who stormed that Capitol. There might be some body bags or some police that were killed, okay, mm-hmm. like that, that died. But it was no body bags, excuse me, except for the lady that got shot. I apologize. There was a lady that breached the Capitol and happened to be shot by a, a black man, happened to be a, a guard defending somebody's life. So there was one body bag of, of a person that was trying to uh, uh, commit treason. So what I'm saying to you is, is this, is that that pattern continues on and on. And I think it's going to continue on until people start to realize you have at least a third to a half of the people, the voting people in this country, who are fine with systemic racism. They're fine with it. And elections are good as long as their people win, as Mm -hmm. long as their people win. But when their people don't win, there's got to be voter fraud. There's got to be intimidation. You know, there, there's got to be uh, uh, some kind of flaw with the with the election machines. And so we have a third to half of the voting people in this country who are fine with systemic racism and uh, and at least a third who say they're interested, but benignly interested, only benignly interested. And I'm going to say this. You notice how when it was leaked in terms of the Supreme Court, most likely reversing a woman's right to choose. You notice how quickly they had a vote in the Senate on a bill that would have protected and defended a woman's right to choose, even though they didn't have enough votes to pass it. You notice how quick that got up there? How quick that got up there? Mm-hmm. That for the George Floyd bill, you can't see the John Lewis bill. See, so what I'm saying is there's a benign neglect on behalf of people when it comes to race. There is much more a concern. Uh, God bless women. I love women. Uh, you know, you know, my mother was a Christian woman. I have a new. But when it comes to these women's rights that primarily, to be honest with you, are focused more at non-African-American women of color in terms of their overall rights than, uh, than, than, than a mass human rights structure. So, yeah, so it, it will continue because a lot of people want it that way. And uh, a lot of people are simply benign until it affects them. Right. At work. I take and try to keep this very uh, on brief, and that is in reference to um, after uh, during this past summer, last summer, um, there was an effort to take and go throughout the community and remove images of um, uh, uh, racial superiority, statues of former generals and others um, that was throughout our public uh, uh, um, environment. But the most um, the most prominent um, image of racial superiority uh, we wear around our neck. Uh, we have in our living rooms over our mantle, we have in our places of worship. And those are images that pretend to portray the divine. We have images that supposedly be the image of God that have blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin. It is more important for us to remove those images than it is for these other images. And it's very important that we remove those other images. But there is no image more important than for you to remove than an image that tells another person, this is God and this is you. This is you. Thank you. Abdul, we're going to close it out with you. 
couple of things come to mind about what happened in uh, Baltimore. Number one, the Supreme Court has said that hate speech is protected speech in this country. I don't agree with that. Um, number two, the disparity with which they negotiated his surrender when you contrast that with the cold-blooded murder of the African-American Congolese brother in Grand Rapids, I can't accept that. Nobody should accept that. The same thing with Dylan Roof, as uh, Brother Hugo Mack mentioned. It's, it's, it, there is a, it, it, it's interesting that the pattern is whenever there's a white terrorist who goes around gunning people down, they negotiate their surrender. The only thing I disagree with Brother Mack is this, this mongrel should have been dropped on the spot. He should have been, he should have been killed on the spot just like they did the brother in Grand Rapids, but he was no threat to the police. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't heard, it's two months and they're telling us they want to complete their investigation. What that to me, I'm talking about in Grand Rapids, that to me, that tells me that they're trying to find a way not to charge that officer. Mm -hmm. It's taken two months to complete their investigation. You have the video, the whole world has seen the video. He was no threat to the officer and he was shot in the back of his head. And you contrast that with what happened in Baltimore the other day, God, who cannot be angry at this? Who, who can't be? Who can't feel indignation at this? Now they're coming into the black communities now, mind you. When this, when this, when this racist pastor came to the Dearborn ten years ago, I warned everybody they'll be marching on Muslim masjids today. They'll be marching in the black communities tomorrow. But they're on. They're not just marching. They're coming in with their guns now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we live in a sick society that says hate speech is free speech. One of one of the regrets I have working in this profession, but that's that's the problem. That's the problem. And 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 somebody dropped the ball on this. By we're hearing that there were all kind of red flags that this this kid, whatever he, whatever his age in Baltimore, he was on social media promoting yeah. his violence, sharing his views that he had a desire to kill, and he did it. He was on. The, he was on people's radar, but he fell off. And this is the result. Yes. So yeah, uh, he was. And and the and the video was horrific. It was on Facebook. They said it took Facebook 10 hours to take it down. 10 hours. If you say one thing wrong on Facebook, they shut you down. For 30 days, just for speech. Right. Right. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. <laughs> so you know, let me watch out because we on Facebook right now. But still, <laughs> you know, I've been I've been in timeout Facebook timeout too. So yeah, I can't I can't believe it took them ten hours. Ten hours to take that. It's it's horrific that people's grandmothers and grandfathers and aunts and uncles, because they were all older people, were killed in that way. Yeah. So I'm just saying we the people we have to get a little bit more angry enough to be to find out how you have to be a part of change. Mm -hmm. Instead of waiting on somebody, instead of asking, you have to figure out what part you're going to play and get activated. Mm -hmm. And get activated because they're not wearing white cloths on their heads anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're showing up just how they, you know, who they are. <laughs> yes. And, and we have, and you know, let me bring some personal experience here. Why I'm angry about it. I had the FBI come to my home three years ago 
about political free speech stuff I made on Facebook. I'm not ashamed to tell it because guess what? I defended my what? Miranda rights. Told him, get off my property. I have nothing to say to you without a lawyer. And if you aren't coming with a warrant, you don't come in here. But why I'm also angry about this incident in Baltimore, I contrast that with my own experience also. They're so busy worried about my political free speech rights, but they dropped the ball on this young man. He killed 10 innocent people. Yeah. Yeah. Going back yeah, to it, Bay days here in Michigan, the, again, the red flags were all there. They dropped the ball on it. These white supremacists, guess what? What you don't know is they practice war against the U.S. government right here in the woods in Michigan. Mm-hmm. They practice mm-hmm. gunfire against the U.S. government, but they're going to come to my door and want to talk to me about political free speech rights. They got nowhere with that. Mm-hmm. And here I stand. Because it is, it, it is not criminal to exercise your political free speech rights, as long as you don't stupidly threaten in the government. But this kid, not only, he made threats, he carried out those threats. Yeah. yeah. That here we are today. Yeah. So yeah, thank you guys for that. We're gonna now switch back to Miranda rights. Um, it all, it, it's all connected actually. So I'm yeah. glad we're having this conversation because even all of this is connected and we all should be aware of what's going on. And so I'm going to leave it, um, give it over to you, Mr. Abdul. Okay. Uh, um, first of all, I, I want to start off by saying that this is for educational purposes only. I got to put a disclaimer in. I'm, I'm not an attorney. I'm a paralegal, but um, this is for educational purposes only. And if anyone does have a real life situation that I'm with, with some of these examples that we're going to talk about today, you are advised to consult with an attorney. And <laughs> it could be Hugo Mack. I'm sure he wants more work. He, he does. He, he needs, a, he needs a, full, a, a full, a plate more full than what he already has. <laughs> but um, just, I'm just going to provide just some of the basics about, well, not just the basics about Miranda. What, um, what, what I hope to, give everyone when they leave from here is to understand when Miranda comes into play, when it does not. And uh, I welcome Hugo Matt to get me on the right track if I'm wrong. And, um, uh, you know, it's more than just that you have a right to remain silent, what you hear on TV and anything you say can be and will be used against you, which is true, but there are more specifics there are more there's more that goes into miranda that the police don't tell you when you're in custody mm-hmm. and when they're interrogating you and there's a reason for that they don't want you to know the full panoply of your miranda mm-hmm. so that's what i'm going to get into today um just briefly miranda warnings originated from a 1966 u.s supreme court decision miranda versus arizona and you've heard about it on pop culture television shows crime TV shows, and basically the Miranda rights are as follows. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to consult with a lawyer. And if you can't afford one, one will be appointed for you. And I think that's, thankfully, I haven't had, haven't had to have Miranda rights read to me, but I think that's basically all the police really tell a suspect, right? And then they mm-hmm. present you a Miranda waiver form, which has more detailed rights, and they tell you, read these and sign these here. But what the additional Miranda rights are that you have a right to consult with a lawyer and have that lawyer present during the interrogation. Mm-hmm. 
If you can't afford a lawyer, the court will appoint one for you. Mm -hmm. You also have a right to invoke your right to remain silent during the interrogation. This is what police don't tell people. And if you do so, the interrogation must stop. Here's another catch. You have a right to invoke the right to have an attorney present and until your attorney is present, the interrogation must stop. Police don't give you all those specifics when they Mirandize you, if you will. So you might notice that the last two points, the right to invoke during mid-questioning and the right to have a lawyer present during mid-questioning are often omitted in pop culture and what you hear on TV and stuff. And even in real life situations, I don't think police give suspects those specific warnings, those specific rights. Those are your rights. And a lot of people don't know that. You waive your right and you, and, you and you agree to start talking to the police. You don't know that midway, hey, I want to exercise. I want a lawyer present because now you're you're, you're, you're asking me for more incriminating statements, but you do have that right. The most common addition to these core Miranda rights has been to end traditional warning with a question along the lines of, quote, now do you understand these rights as I have read them to you? Mm -hmm. Suspect must affirmatively respond that they understand those rights before police questioning may begin. Courts mm -hmm. will not interpret, let me say, courts generally do not interpret a suspect's silence as sufficient mm -hmm. acknowledgement of his Miranda rights. There are two basic prerequisites before police are required to issue a Miranda warning to a suspect. Number one is the suspect must be in custody and the suspect must be under interrogation. Police custody is generally defined as anytime the police deprive you of your freedom of action in any significant way, if you don't feel free to walk away for example. Realistically though, it refers to an arrest. Police interrogation, it's worth noting that the warning must come before you're being interrogated. So until the interrogation has begun, you aren't necessarily owed a Miranda warning. A request for identification is generally not considered interrogation and you are required, as Brother Edward Sanders mentioned earlier, you are required to confirm your identity and that's all you should tell the police. Who you are, you know, where you live and that's it. Now I'm going to ask you, Jay, if you, can you pull up that uh, PowerPoint presentation because that has some perfect examples and this, this, can everyone see this PowerPoint presentation? Yes, it's on the screen. Okay, this, I, this PowerPoint presentation involves some real life examples from Michigan and the US Supreme Court about when Miranda warnings come into play and when a person is in custody and when not. So if you, um, you all can just go along with me here. I just wanna, these, uh, these are the basic Miranda rights. And as you can see, I'm on slide six here. It says, if the legal warning is not given prior to an in custody interrogation, then all subsequent statements are precluded and not admissible at trial. The police must give you your Miranda rights when you're in custody and before they start interrogating you. What is custody? Custody is a legal definition. We all know what, you know, we, we have this idea that police put the handcuffs on you, they take you to the station. Yeah, you're in custody, but there's, there's more to it. The United States Supreme Court has unequivocally settled that the triggering mechanism for the requirement of Miranda warnings is custody and not focus of the investigation. Michigan follows this view as well. 
Interrogation means questioning. This questioning can be in the form of an officer asking the suspect direct questions. Hey, did you shoot that guy? Do you have drugs on you? Know, did you just, you know, do you, do you have drugs on you? More direct questions. Or it can be comments or actions by the officer that the officer should have known are likely to produce an incriminating reply. And again, there's some US Supreme Court and Michigan Supreme Court decisions there. Courts have generally used the totality of the circumstances test to figure this out. For this test, the court will look at a number of factors and focus on the physical and psychological restraints on the person's freedom during the interview. Again, because they, you're getting into the voluntariness of a person's confession, where there are physical and psychological restraints that induce them to confess, or did they voluntarily, intelligently, and knowingly confess? Courts may consider the following factors to determine whether a custody, whether an interrogation was custodial. For example, the, the example given here in this slide, who asked the questions? The police officer, the prison guard? Was the questioner in a position of authority? Was he or she carrying a gun? These are just examples. The identity of the questioner goes to the intimidation level of the interview. For example, a court may consider an armed police officer or a prison guard more compelling than a than a postal inspector who's interrogating you. And that's true. How many officers were present? More officers point to a more coercive environment. Who else was there? A court might find a situation less coercive if the suspect is surrounded by families or friends. And if you think about it, that makes sense. If you're being, if you invite the police officer into your home and your family and friends are present there in the living room and you give a confession, were you in custody? No. And if the officer didn't read you your Miranda rights, you're not in custody. They, lo they look at the totality of the circumstances, the environment in which you gave your statement or confession. The other important key, who initiated the discussion? A, this is a good one because people do this a lot. A suspect walking up to an officer and asking questions suggests a non-custodial situation. Don't do that. Just don't do that. Even if you're walking up to a crime scene like Devontae Sanford did, and look what happened to him. He was a curious onlooker and they targeted him. I advise people, don't go up to a crime scene and start asking the police questions because their inclination is say, wait, why are you curious? You got something to do with this? You gotta, you gotta be, use some common sense, be careful. Did the officer tell the suspect the interview was voluntary? If so, a court is more likely to consider the interview non-custodial. This is very important. This happens a lot in non, well, Hugo Mack, help me here. In non-custodial settings where police are asking you questions, would a reasonable person feel he's not free to leave? Right, right. That, that depends on th this one of many factors. Did the officer tell you that, you know, this interview is voluntary, you're free to leave? <coughs> Most police won't do that because they don't want you to know that. But that is a key in terms of the voluntariness of anything you say to that police officer. Again, that's part of the totality of the circumstances. The court will look at that as among, among other, the other factors I'm sharing with you all here. Um, police won't tell you some of them will, but I don't think they'll let you know because they don't want you to know that they want to, like Ed, Ed Sanders said, they're not your ally. They're not your friend. They want to leave with somebody in handcuffs. So if an officer is questioning you or interrogating you, I think, you know, I, I tell people, 
you should, if you, if you believe you're being interrogated as a suspect, ask the officer, am I free to leave? You know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable talking to you. Am I free to leave? Don't feel, put that officer, back him in a corner and have him tell you. And if he said, you know, hopefully they'll tell you the truth that, yeah, you can leave. Then you do that. Leave and don't say nothing. Don't talk. Don't make statements. Don't confess. And I will tell you something else. A lot of people have been convicted, even though they didn't confess, but they said just enough that got them in trouble at trial. This is why, like Ed Sanders said, all you have to do is verify your identity. That's it. Cut it off. Did the author, um, where did the questioning take place? This is important. This is also interesting. Was it at the police station, in the suspect's home, or on the street, or in a hospital room? The issue is how familiar or coercive the setting is to the suspect. An interview at a police station, for example, would likely be more intimidating than one on the sidewalk. That's true. That's true. Even in your home. Your home is a perfect example. I know I had a recent case where a defendant invited the police into his home and he made some incriminating statements, even though he didn't give a full-blown confession. It was enough to get him convicted. That was a non-custodial environment. He wasn't in handcuffs. He allowed the police to come into his home. He didn't tell them, you know, I'm not going to talk to you without a lawyer present. I, I want you to leave. But he gave he gave a statement. It got, he gave several statements. It was enough to seal his fate. He shouldn't. Number one, you shouldn't let the police in your home. You know, it, it, not if you're the focus of the investigation without a warrant. Number two. If you if you allow them in your home, you got to be careful what you tell them. Same thing with this example. If you encounter the police on a sidewalk, even at roadside roadside stops, if you notice, police don't read you your Miranda rights when they're pulling you over for a traffic stop, and they ask you, "Do you have any guns or drugs in the car?" Because guess what? They don't have to. That's not custodial. That's a, de a temporary detention. It's different. So we just went over all these examples. Did the officer use any force on the suspect? If the officer used force prior to or during the questioning, a court may consider it a custodial situation. Did the officer use any physical restraints? Was the suspect able to move around? Restriction of movement supports a finding of custody. Let me, let me, I like this example. Again, the police are in your home. They're in your living room. Even, even if you invited them in and they put handcuffs on you. Are you in custody? I think so, yes, because your freedom of movement at that point is restricted. And they, they have to Mirandize you at that point. What time was it when the conversation took place? Was it in the middle of the night or during the day? An interview at an odd hour may, may point to custody. How long did the questioning last? That's a, that's, that, that's a good one. Longer interviews lean toward finding of custody. What was the style of the interview? Were the questions accusatory or routine? And off and interviewing, I'm sorry, and interviewing accusing the suspect of certain acts in a threatening matter, manner may indicate custodial interrogation. Was the suspect free to leave at the end of the conversation? A yes answer tends to suggest that the suspect wasn't in custody. That can happen a lot at police stations too. The police call you up and they tell you, we want to interview you, can you come on in? You're not in custody. You go into the lobby to talk to the police officer. You're not in custody. He or she doesn't have to Mirandize you before you give an incriminating statement. You've got to be careful with going to the police station and giving statements. 
because if you give them a confession or a statement at that point, and then you try to challenge it in court, they're going to say, sorry, Charlie, you were not in custody and you gave the officer a statement. They invited you to go to the station. They didn't arrest you and take you in. You've got to be careful. I like these examples. A police officer contacts Matt about a burglary and Matt agrees to meet the officer at the police station to talk about it. The example I just gave. The officer doesn't initially give a Miranda warning, instead telling Matt he isn't under arrest. And that was true. The officer says he thinks Matt is involved in the burglary and tells him the police have found Matt's fingerprints at the scene, even though they really haven't. Five minutes into the interview, Matt confesses. The officer then gives a Miranda warning and Matt confesses again. An hour after he entered the station, Matt leaves. Now he, he confessed and he left the station. The interview was not custodial because Matt voluntarily went to the police station. The officer told him he wasn't under arrest and he left at the end. That's a U.S. Supreme Court decision, Oregon versus Mathiason. Police officer, here's another good example. Police officers who are investigating reports of child pornography appear at Bess's job and tell her to stop working. Now they go to her job. They escort her to a conference room. One may think, okay, that's custodial. They're escorting her where an officer tells her she isn't under arrest and that she'll, quote, walk out of here when we're done, unquote. The officer doesn't give a Miranda warning. He questions her for over two hours in a generally calm tone. Bess makes an incriminating statement during the interview. Although the interview took a long time and Bess didn't voluntarily walk to the conference room with the officers, she was not in custody because the interview was in a familiar place, her workplace. She wasn't isolated from the outside world and the police didn't pressure her to confess. The confession was consensual and not coercive. And that, that, that was a Ninth Circuit decision. This is a Michigan, Michigan Court of Appeals decision in 2017. Defendant made incriminating statements to the detective. Defendant was never given Miranda warnings before the interview. He, he consented to the detective's request for an interview and she entered the detective's fully marked vehicle. I'm sorry, this is a she. This is a good example, which was located in the defendant's driveway. She agreed to go into the police car and talk to the officers. She entered the back seat of the patrol vehicle. The officers, the doors were locked and could only be opened from the outside. The detective sat in the front seat. Now one would think, okay, that's custodial if she couldn't open the door, right? No, because she agreed to go into the police car. The court held from the totality of the circumstances, she was not in custody at the time she made the challenge statements. Although she was in the back of the, the locked patrol car, car remained parked in her own driveway at the time of the interview. It is not as if defendant was left in the car with no way to get out, even if she had at any time indicated a desire to exit the car. She didn't do that. She didn't say, I want to get out. I guess, you know, this is, this was a good example because she, I guess she tried to challenge her statements at trial and the court said, nope, sorry, you, you didn't meet the first element. You were not in custody. You agreed to go in the back of the patrol car. You gave a statement and then the officer let you out. That's, that's non-custodial. Police do not need to obtain a waiver before interrogating a suspect, but rather only to inform the suspect of his rights under Miranda and may begin questioning once the suspect acknowledges his rights. This is a uh, Bergwies versus Thompson U.S. Supreme Court decision. Second, a suspect waives his right under Miranda once he voluntarily answers questions knowing he does not need to do so. Third, a, this, third, a suspect must un unambiguously invoke his right to remain silent if he wishes to invoke his right to cut off questioning. He cannot do so through ambiguous conduct or by merely remaining silent. I had a, 
I remember this case, and this is this is very important because some suspects will. I'll give you an example what this what what this means here when it says that you must unambiguously assert your right. You cannot ask the officer, "Do you think I need a lawyer?" and 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 then go into court and say, "But I exercise my right to remain silent." I asked the officer if I should have a lawyer present. He didn't. He didn't respond your confession will not be thrown out under those circumstances. You did not affirmatively assert your right to remain silent. What you should tell the police officer is, I have nothing to say to you without a lawyer present. Cease questioning. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make any statements. But this case was interesting because the suspect made a, made a confession or made a statement and he asked the police whether they believe he should have his lawyer present. In court, he tried to challenge his statements and say that I asserted my right to counsel. But the court said, no, you did not make an affirmative right, an affirmative assertion of your right to counsel, it was it was ambiguous. So that's that's a that, that's very important. You must assert your right. You must you must affirmatively assert your right to counsel, and you cannot be ambiguous about it. Or here's another example: you can't tell the police, "Well, I think I should have a lawyer here," and then and then believe that you asserted your right to counsel. You, that's not an affirmative assertion of your right to counsel. You have to be affirmative. You have you can't leave any room for ambiguity. Because the police can continue questioning you at that point, they know what you have to say. They know what they know how much leeway they have to continue interrogating you. And these are the reasons why many times the police won't answer those questions because they they don't want you to know that you have the right to have an, your lawyer present. You know, even though they read you those rights, they just you know they shoot them off to you and have you sign that form. And like Ed said, they just want you to confess. Having expressed his desire to deal with the police only through counsel, the subject is not subject to further interrogation. I have a question. Yes. Mr. Abdul, yes. Um, before you go on. Mm -hmm. So once you insert your right to have counsel, I want to mm -hmm. have a lawyer or maybe an attorney who come back can answer this. And how do you get the lawyer if you don't even have a lawyer? The court has to appoint one for you, which is what, which is what, which is one of the Miranda rights. Mm -hmm. Police officer has to stop interrogating you at that point. Okay. If you can't afford a lawyer, they just cannot. They, well, the the obligation is on the police at that point to stop interrogating you. How you're going to get a lawyer from that point is is is, you know, the court will have to appoint one for you. You'll have a hearing, and you know, the court will appoint a lawyer for you. And then I believe the police can resume interrogating you, but the lawyer has to be present. Is that correct, Hugo? Well, well, a couple of things. First of all, you can revoke your right to remain silent. In other words, you can tell the police, look, I, I don't have anything to say. I want my lawyer present, you know. Uh, but then later on, sitting there thinking, as I've had so many clients, but they can outsmart the police. They can outthink the police. Mm -hmm. They've got more street savvy than the police. All lies, by the way. All <laughs> fools. Para uh, a guy named a guy named Coolio once uh, made a song called "Gangsters Paradise," you know, and he says we spend our lives living in a gangsters paradise. That mm -hmm. is a gangsters paradise to think mm -hmm. you are more resourceful and smarter than the police. You mm -hmm. are definitely not. No. So, so, so what happens is a lot of times people and sitting there saying look I, I can i can talk my way my way out of this now um i'm i'm going to give you an, an example of something i had to deal with where a person in fact did 
exercise their right to remain silent and the young man's parents contacted me, right? Okay, now the police, when I went down to the police station, I could see them in another room sitting there and having some conversation with uh, my client. You see, police are very nuanced and I don't want to filibuster here. Police are very nuanced, you know, uh, for example, uh, you have a right to remain silent. Okay, well, I'm exercising my right to remain silent. In there. Well, you know, you want a cup of coffee, uh, you know, uh, something to something to eat, you know, you're real thirsty, you know, or anything like that. You see, to build that kind of a trust, trust. Uh, facade with someone that, hey, this guy's asking me if I'm thirsty or wants something to eat, you know, uh, hey, he's not so bad. Or the most infamous one, infamous one. Hey, you know what? I apologize for my partner. He's a real a-hole, okay, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, he's just real nasty, but I don't agree with stuff that he says, so, you know, I just want to help you, and you know what, you know, I want to tell you this, you've got your right to remain silent, but, you know, all we want to do is just kind of see what happened here, you know, we're not trying to get anybody in trouble, police do not have the authority to cut deals with any defendant, Only the that's prosecution. not their job, right. they don't have the authority. So anytime you hear a police officer tell you or your people, we just want to find out what happened. You know, uh, everybody goes home tonight. Bull, bull, ain't nobody going a damn place. Okay, so so that th there's a position in our criminal justice system, given the name of people who make those decisions. They're called prosecutors. Okay, so so police and prosecutors are partners. So um, so my my response, Jay Love, is that when people invoke their right to remain silent that right can be revoked and police are masters of setting up the psychological overlay for the underplay to get you to do just that especially if you're a juvenile especially yeah. juvenile were, were your parents supposed to be notified and things like that mm -hmm. uh and, and, and parents coming in i'm sorry for being long here and no in, and you know in, in the culture particularly in african-american culture in my community you know we have a strong basic moral background of right and wrong because you know the church rightfully or wrongfully has been part of our culture ever since we've been in the united states okay you know a, a belief in the church our greatest civil rights leaders have come from the church okay so what i'm saying is when a parent comes in they don't understand exactly what their child is facing with and they berate little johnny or kadisha and say tell them what happened I'm telling you, you better tell them what happened. You better be damn careful. You know, have that child confess to you in private. Don't confess in front of the police. Yes, yes. Um, Larry Smith said, I asked for a lawyer and they turned the lawyer away, then said I made a, a statement. Well, his, no, his lawyer would know if he was turned away, correct? Yeah. Yeah, he said they turned his lawyer away. Yeah, his lawyer certainly would have known that. Yeah. Well, and if I can just dovetail on that, I'm sorry, I segued away from what I was saying originally. I had a case where I went in and wanting to talk to my client, all right? I could see the police talking to them, to him in an interrogation room, but there were locked doors and windows between me and them. And mm -hmm. I'm pounding on the window to try to get the attention of this kid telling, shut up. Mm -hmm. Shut up, mm -hmm. okay? But the police yeah. deliberately kept me isolated from him, you know, and that kid kept on talking. Because even if a kid says, I will, or a person says, 
I waive my right to uh, to an attorney. It doesn't mean an attorney can't show up representing somebody. It doesn't exactly. mean that. But unless they see you and know you're there representing them, they have no incentive to stop talking. And I believe that example you gave, uh, Hugo, there was a recent, I don't know if it was recent, there was a Michigan Supreme Appellate decision that addressed that, that said, if the lawyer shows up at the police station, I want to look at that after research that, the police now have a duty to at least, at least inform the suspect that his lawyer is in the lobby in order for the suspect to make what? A knowing and voluntary and intelligent waiver of counsel. Because if you think about it, how many defendants are going to say, oh, no, tell my lawyer to go home. If you, if you know your lawyer is in the lobby of the police station, you're going to want to talk. That's your only savior at that moment. Right. So I think that, that example, Hugo, just, you, you just gave is, is a good example. I seem to recall there was uh, a decision by the Michigan appellate Court that said that the police do have a duty to inform the suspect if counsel shows up now. Because, again, so that he or she can make a voluntary, knowing, and intelligent waiver. All right, Larry said... Larry oh, I'm sorry. Cost, oh, that's okay, Reverend Tig. Uh, Larry said it cost him 27 years. He's an exoneree. And, and you know, the, the question I have, too, with that is, is what about the locking of the doors and a person is already in custody and you, you're questioning them and locking the doors and not allowing the lawyer to even have access? Is that proper protocol? Well, I would say no. And I mean, no, no. right, Hugo? I mean, yeah, I mean, well, well, I tell you what, the Epsilon Police Department did it to me back in their back in the um, in the early 80s. I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Brother Abdul is right. Things have progressed to an extent. But what about all the people that fall through those cracks? You know, who, who, who you know, because in my case, you know, I said, well, he was talking to them, uh, Attorney Mack, and said, yeah, but I'm pounding on the window, Judge. Don't tell me those police didn't hear me or know I was there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that situation, your lawyer is your best witness, right? Because right. if your lawyer is there, your lawyer is going to the police. Think about it. Your lawyer is going to the police station mm -hmm. to, to consult with you and to stop this train, if you will, to, that you confess or make any statements. So if they send your lawyer away or they or they they interfere with that process, your lawyer is your best witness. Number one, he's an officer of the court. So the court's right. going to give a lot of, I hope the courts will give a lot of deference to your lawyer because right. they'll take testimony on the voluntariness of your confession from right. your lawyer. That's the best witness at that point is to have your, if, if your lawyer goes into the police station, and I, and I know police probably will do, they do do these things. They don't, they, they, they have this attitude. We don't care about you if you're a lawyer, you know, they want to get a conviction. But if, if that happens and you confess, your lawyer, you have what is called, what is that, a, a Walker hearing to determine the voluntariness of your confession. Mm -hmm. Your lawyer, is, is the, the court will take testimony of your, will, will take your lawyer's testimony. Because, you know, you can step there and say, my lawyer showed up and they wouldn't let my lawyer see me. Well, who's going to believe you, right? You're the defendant, you, you know. Right, because Larry said, I refused to talk and said I want a lawyer. My mom sent the lawyer, told told me the lawyer was there. Then they told him to go home. Yeah, this was probably before that change of law because this yeah. happened to Larry some 20-something years ago. But I seen I seem to have a, a distinct recollection. There was a recent appellate decision that said if the, if the defendant's attorney shows up at the police station and, and lets the police know he wants to consult with his client, the police have a duty to let that client know before 
he makes he or she makes a, makes a statement or or, or or a confession. Yeah. Because well, what you have to do is you have to voluntarily waive your right to a lawyer, just like you can waive your Miranda rights. And theoretically, it makes sense. How many suspects do you know is going to say, no, I don't want to talk to my lawyer if he's in the lobby of the police station. You want that You want that lawyer to break the door down and come in there and save you. Right. So. so this next example about traffic stops, mm. and this is true, Miranda warnings are not required when a person is questioned during a routine traffic stop or Terry stop. And the Terry stop is where police can stop you and temporarily detain you on less than probable cause as long as they have an articulable suspicion that you committed or are about to commit a crime. That's, that's, that's very broad. A temporary detention incident to a traffic stop or general on the scene investigation normally does not trigger Miranda protections. And again, police, you know, I got pulled over by Ferndale police on May 4th and I'll share this experience. And one first thing they asked me, are there any weapons in the car? I didn't sit there and argue with the officer because I, you know, I know that he had legally, he doesn't have to Mirandize me because this is what this, that's like a Terry stop. Traffic stops are different. You're not in custody. You're in your car. You're not in custody. And the police can ask you, do you have any drugs or guns in there? You know, they can even ask you if you have a body in the trunk. And if you do, you're going to, you're going to be charged with, with murder, right? Because they don't have to Mirandize you before they ask you, is there a body in the trunk of the car? It's a temporary detention. It's not custodial. A motorist detained pursuant to a traffic stop is entitled to Miranda protections only if they're restrained to a degree associated with a formal arrest. In other words, beyond the purpose of the traffic stop. That's when Miranda comes into play. So when you do when a Terry stop happens, mm -hmm. uh, that's reasonable. Can you explain the difference between reasonable suspicion and probable cause? Because well, a, a Terry stop, they're just they don't need probable cause for a Terry stop, correct? Right. Right. They right. just have suspect suspicion. Or... The example I gave you the other day, I, I'm going to use that here. is It's a, it's a good example. Like if police are patrolling a known uh, area for, for drug activity. Okay, let's say they're they're they've been having this house under surveillance, and they've even raided the house, and they know that drugs and you know heroin and crack are being sold in, out of that house. And one day while they're surveying the house. They see you walk, walking on the same side of the street where the house is, walking down the street. That gets close to a Terry permissible stop. You're walking and it looks and the officer can always say, I thought I saw him coming out of the drug house. I don't need reason. I don't need a warrant to stop and frisk him. I don't need a warrant to arrest him. I can do a quick. Here's what they can do. They can temporarily detain you, ask you for identification, ask you where you're going, where you're coming from and pat you down and let you go. Hopefully you don't have any drugs on you. If you do, you're going you know, you, you get you get you 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 see what's getting ready to happen. Those are what they call you hear that term Terry stops. The police doesn't need they don't need probable cause, which is a very high standard that you committed a crime or that in this case possession of drugs or that you're about to commit a crime. All they need is what is called an articulable suspicion. In other words, their gut feeling, right? That you came out of this drug house and they suspect you have narcotics on you. 
they do a Terry stop, a pat down search. They find narcotics. Yep, they can take you in and you will be charged. It gets a little trickier if you're five blocks down the house, down the street from that drug house. And it gets harder for them to justify Terry stopping you in that in that situation. So the further you're away from that house, the the harder it is for the officer to justify the quote Terry stop unquote. If that's the yeah. So so I've got a question. So if it's if it's a, is it a Terry stop? Like I would get I've got stopped several times, and like each time they would say my car was look suspicious compared to a car like they were looking for a car and look identical to my car but what is that they did they ended up not searching and i i hadn't done anything wrong um mm -hmm. as far as traffic was concerned and once they finished running my check you know running everything they just told me well you know your car looked suspicious you know similar to what they were looking for so they i think they I, they i think they, they just lied is what they, oh, they yeah. lied you very likely would profile because if i would think if that if a reasonable officer this is what the courts look at the standard of a reasonable officer in that situation what he, he or she should have done if your car matched the description of a car they you know it's not enough for them to just tell me that, okay? A, a, a description of the car that did what? It was involved in armed robbery or murder? But a reasonable officer would ask to search the vehicle, and they didn't search your vehicle, did they? No. Yeah. They they did not search the vehicle, and you know what? I thinking back, um, it's been been a couple of years now. I I used to get so afraid when I would get pulled over. Oh, understand. And I mean my heart rate would increase and start sweating. And even if I, you know, whether I did, I did, I wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't have done anything, but I would still be very much afraid. And we're, you know, as we're looking through this, the more a person knows, and this is why I'm saying this, is the more you know, the less fear you have. Yes. The more you know, than the less fear you have. Because had I known what I know today, they would avoid my car at all costs. Yeah, and so seeing you that you said that, that reminds me of something that happened to me in Dearborn. I was inside a store. Next thing I know, police were behind me with guns drawn. And they told me to step back. I stepped back and they started patting me down immediately. And so I'm like, what is going on? Because <laughs> I just got here. And so uh, they took my purse. Uh, they walked me outside of the store. And then they started saying, um, you can make this easy on yourself or you can make it hard on yourself. That was so I'm like, what are you talking about? So there's like this lady is coming, and if she says you, then you're going to jail. So you need to confess. And so uh, a gentleman who was inside the store that saw everything, he came out and he was telling them, hey, you're not supposed to pat her down, blah, blah, blah. And they was like, yes, we can pat her down. And so um, 
they asked me where my they took my car keys and so they were trying to figure out which car was mine and trying to open it up so meanwhile they're also waiting for some lady to pull up i'm still confused i'm like what is going you know still trying to find out what is going on and so um the lady pulls up a white lady in the police car and she shook her head no thank god and they left and so they said to me well what happened was somebody pulled a knife out on this lady in the store mm. and i'm they didn't say i looked like the person or my car i don't even know where they came from because i didn't even see them when i was in the parking lot and so they didn't i didn't nothing other than i was a black woman right in dearborn so after that happened um of course now i'm i'm so upset that i'm crying and the officer said well if it was you and somebody pulled a knife out on you wouldn't you want us to do the same thing and i said no i wouldn't want you to treat anybody like you just treated me and so i um they gave me their supervisor information and everything this was years back and so when i went to the airborne police um to to complain about what happened to me um only thing the person in charge said at that time who was the chief he said well i could give him a couple of days off i'll give him a couple of days off that was it and so so as you know that experience when you know this happened to gerard it just you know that played back to me you know what happened to him and what happened to me and so and you know that's why we're here today but i'm just saying these things when we talk about i wasn't even a, in a car so you know where is there wasn't even a traffic stop you came inside of a a store <laughs> and they, snatched me out of there yeah they targeted the first african-american woman they saw and it was you right um, you know what that reminds me this is like um evidence class we, we and i learned them in the paralegal school and it's and there this this is about this is existing law now also unseen identifications suggestive unseen identifications thank god that woman said they had the wrong person because right has she identified you you were going to be charged right. has she has she make a mistaken identification witness identification is the most unreliable scientific evidence there is exactly. but that would have that 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 would have been so illegal police cannot make cannot ask victims to do on-scene identifications. Let me make sure I got this right now. Not in a suggestive manner like that. If you, I mean, they can do corporal lineups at the station and stuff, but to have her hoping that she was going to say, you did it, is pretty dangerous. Yes. And Dearborn. And so, <laughs> believe me, I, stopped, I used to work in Dearborn, but I just stopped going there, period after that happened because that right there with you know how they target me how, you know how many other people have they done that two for one how many people are in prison right now because of that same type of situation mistaken identification. yeah mistaken and mistaken identification is the reason why gerard went to prison oh wow I'm, I'm sorry to hear that happen to you. And I know that happens all too, that happens a lot of times to people. Right. 
and which is one of the reasons why I oppose on-scene identifications. They're so suggestive. It suggests that the victim identify you as a suspect. You're the only African-American woman there. But thankfully, this woman had the, had, had, had the, had the courage to say, no, that's, she's not the one. Yeah. Edward, I saw your hand up. Yes, thank you. Um, Yusuf Salam, Dr. Yusuf Salam, who was one of the um, exonerates from the Central Park in New York. He was one of the kids, one of the five kids that was convicted in, in that instance. He was recently here in the Detroit area uh, where he gave a, um, um, a talk at the uh, Muslim Center on um, Witcher Wilson and um, Davidson. And he acknowledged that his mother had came down while they had him and the other kids in different rooms interrogating them. And he said one of the things that his mother had told him that he took her advice and that was she noted to him that whatever they are trying to do, they need your participation. Okay, she was uncertain of whatever they were trying to do, but she was certain that what they needed was those kids participation. And so inevitably she was explaining to him, don't, don't. And, um, and that's what I would say to anyone that come in contact with law enforcement officers. It ain't their job to exonerate you. It's not their job to exonerate you. Their job is to take when there is a complaint about a crime having been committed is to investigate that crime and to take and try to bring about a resolution of it in terms of presenting a complaint to a prosecuting authority, a charging authority which are prosecutors and they try to do that within the least amount of time that they can do it and with the least amount of trouble if you are taking and making their job easy they really don't care whether or not you are the person um there there are far and few officers in between that have that regards if you don't believe it all you have to do is look at the prison population we have a culture that has taught us to the extreme about not telling on others but we forgot to take and use that principle about ourselves don't tell on yourself you don't learn how not to tell on others but you haven't learned how not to tell on your your own self that's so true 10 percent of those that are in prison are likely innocent my estimate is much larger than that over nine anywhere from 92 to 97 percent of any prison population whether you're talking about state or federal are there as a result of guilty pleas my position yeah. is is that the larger number is in the guilty pleas and many people plead guilty many ple people plead guilty even people who are guilty plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. It's part of the bargaining. This is why I seriously believe that prosecutors shouldn't have the authority to both charge you with offense and then sit down and negotiate the reduction for those offense. I feel and believe that there should be someone else in the judicial process that should look at the original charges that the prosecutors bring so when they offer a plea, they assess whether or not these are actually the proper charges first before they entertain a plea. Because a plea, when the state government 
is taken or the federal government when the government is using its resources and its authority to negotiate with you it should be a level one it should be an even one and mm. there's nothing in the process to bring about any level any leveling of the negotiation you can't get that from attorney that is underpaid and overworked and undertrained you don't get that from that type of representation we are bragging that we have the greatest judicial system in the world that and, and that the, the cornerstone or the marquee of that is our jury system but our jury system is hardly ever used right. and even when it's used the population that is the majority in terms of being convicted the members of their own peers are excluded from the jury process there are very few black people that constitute juries but the majority of the people in this country that are convicted and sentenced are black but the constitution say that you have a right to members of your own peer but somehow mm -hmm. they learn how to use uh, 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 um, um, uh, you know words and different definitions to expand the idea of a peer group right they're not your peers when you get ready to go apply for a job they're not your peers in the classroom they're not your peers in any other circumstances other than in the courtroom the person that is representative for god with blonde hair and blue eyes and, and white skin they now become they come off the cross and they now no longer look like god they look like you they're your peers now in the courtroom okay so i speak very loud about this because we are too we are too complacent with this type of behavior it's like taking imagine yourself living in, in post hitler germany and you're a jewish person and this same reality exists in in germany we would rebuke germany for this we would say that is so horrific you haven't went a step away from hitler's germany but here we are post-slavery we have more people behind bars today than there were black people on plantations and we don't make the same comparison we do not make the same comparison in fact we take a vow that the same political parties that participate in this that make it possible that somehow we are born in this and we are dying this we tell people i was born this and i'm gonna die this i ain't gonna never vote for the other party but let me tell you the average person that didn't experience the criminal justice system i feel that if you belong to one of the other parties or an independent party you shouldn't automatically assume that these people don't come out from that experience and vote for a one particular party if you have accepted that you didn't gave up the fight before you even fought and that's because we tend not to deal with issues that's because we tend not to deal with issues you are a damn fool if you think that i'm going to come out of prison and i'm going to take and become a member let's say of the person <laughs> for example the clintons that's who took my right away to take and father my education when i was in prison i sometimes brag that i graduated with the largest class in prison 
at college. The class was so damn big is because we were all taking and trying to get out the door before <clears throat> his crime bill that took and stopped people that were incarcerated from being able to go to college. That's why I graduated with the last, the largest class in, 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 in Michigan prison. Okay, not because there was a bunch of us that was real smart and that had, you know, was breaking down the dough. These were people that had been taking and trying to get the education all along. But when that door got ready to close, everybody kind of went out like a bottleneck. Do not cooperate. Do not assume that you are on an equal level field with the person that is questioning you about a crime. That person has already went through extensive training, extensive training in getting you to confess. And that training is continuous and ongoing, and it is proven to be effective. And if you don't believe it's effective, read the numbers. Look at the numbers of people who are in prison. Look at the numbers of people who are arrested and are never released until there's been a conviction and a sentence and an imprisonment. Look at those numbers if you think you already know the situation. You do not know the situation. They are trained to do that. And when you tell them, I would like an attorney, believe me, the conversation is over with. They don't want to have a conversation with you with that attorney in the room because they know it's an adult in the room is an adult in the room. You do not have a legal degree. Don't pretend that you have a legal degree. Right. The difference between probable cause and reasonable suspicion, if you haven't gotten a picture yet of what the difference are, is like a, a reasonable suspicion is equivalent to Donald Trump imagining that he won the election. Okay? <laughs> That's what reasonable suspicion <laughs> is. is Donald Trump imagining that he won the election. Probable cause feels is that he ain't got no damn evidence. <laughs> he has no damn evidence. That's the difference between the two. Okay? And so any so if an if a if a person in uniform can articulate, that means if they can put the words why they stop you, a court will go for it. Give me an excuse, any excuse. Just give me something. And that's like telling Donald Trump, give me a story today about how great you are. Give me a story today about how you was at the top of your damn class. Give me a story today how you smart because you don't pay any taxes. Uh-oh. All that is an example uh, of... Every guy stuck, frozen. <laughs> he was on the road. <laughs> Am Go I here, Adua, Mr. Adua. <laughs> Okay, oh, okay, you back. <laughs> okay, all those are examples of what you call subjective. Subjective yeah. is something that is very indefinitive, but objective is something a little bit more definitive. Mm -hmm. There is no proof that Donald Trump won any damn election. Okay, <laughs> but believe me, more than 30% of the white population in America believe him. And it's the same way in the judicial system. You say something, more than 30% of that white judicial branch government is going to believe that you gave up your damn right. 
okay? No matter how good your story is, hey, I took and told him I wanted my attorney, but you sit there and continue to have a conversation after he gave you a damn bag of chips or after he gave you a cigarette or after he continued to take and question you and do not have a conversation with a family member. They decide to take and let you sit down and talk to your girlfriend or your oh. wife or some other family member. That thing that looks like a, a smoke detector up on the wall, or that thing that looked like the uh, uh, um the, 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 the thermometer on the wall to keep the, the heat. Those not. Those are cameras and microphones. Shut your damn mouth. Don't have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. They're gonna tell you after you speaking to that damn mic and that camera that it was obvious, even though you say no, it looked at like a like a um a smoke detector they're going to tell you that and when when they give an explanation of why it's there they say we put it there because he might commit suicide he might kill himself so we got it there so we can see if he attempts suicide we mm -hmm. can hear it mm -hmm. and, and or he might attack the other person that's in the room so believe me you're on candy camera when you show up in their custody mm -hmm. it's not your environment it's not your environment. You are not out on the block. You are off the block. Act like you're off the block. And not only the cameras, you know, all, all this, the phone conversations. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many files I pick up. You know, I, how many files I pick up other than somebody confessing or giving enough of a statement to get them in trouble where defendants in the county jail and in prison, despite knowing that the calls are being recorded, get on there and spill their guts to their friend or their, their girlfriend or somebody. And guess what? Here comes the prosecutor with a transcript of your phone conversation in court. You make it harder for Hugo Matt to defend you. Right. <laughs> and then you want their lawyer to work magic and get it tossed out of court. We can't. Has, Miranda has nothing to do with the fact that you, you you ran your mouth on the telephone call with your with your girlfriend or your mother or whoever. Right. Some of this is common sense. You are in a situation like Ed said. You're not out. You're, you're not on. You're not on the block out in the neighborhood where you can say and do what you want and hope you know you pretty much get away with it. You're in detention. And 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 you can't talk. You can't outsmart the police. You can't outsmart the phone call. The recorded phone calls. Once the damage is done, you you nailed yourself. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes I have to give it raw to some people, even when I'm doing appellate reviews. Okay. And I'm reading. I have a file. I can tell you, I have like hundreds of pages of the conversations this guy had with a with 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 friends and family on the outside and it blew my mind and then you wonder how you wonder why we can't get it thrown out of court <laughs> you didn't confess oh, to yeah. the, it's, it's legal it's legal the, the, it, you know what some of this is simple you, you make it hard again you got to know when the police are using the buddy system to get your trust you gotta you gotta see it coming i mean and if you're you, you some, you, you, you're savvy enough that you should know this and you've sat here and you let them buy you a drink or buy, give you a cigarette or poor Devonte Sanford. They did that to him. They won his trust. They played cowboys and they played cowboys with this kid, took him to a Coney Island, let him play on a video, video game. They, they did this, got him back to the station and, and, and 
lured him into giving a bogus confession, but it don't happen. His situation was different. This was a 14-year-old kid who suffered from a mental, a diminished mental disability. They took, they exploited that. They took advantage of that. Something else I will tell you, and the police will measure you up within five to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. They know how, how resistful you're going to be or if they got you. They're trained. They're psychologically trained in this. They're gonna, they, you know, they'll they'll do what they can to break your will without beating beating a confession out of you and, and keeping you under a light for 24 or 48 hours and starving you to death. They don't have to do that as much anymore. It still happens. But you got to be savvy enough. You've got to, your senses have to be real sharp. When they come at you, the simple rule is I have nothing to say to you without a lawyer present. I'm not gonna talk to you. You know, don't equivocate. Don't don't ask them to do you a favor. And say, can you get me a lawyer? Or you know, can you wait until my lawyer come in? No, I have nothing. And you know what? They beat beat me to death. <laughs> okay, but you're not. I'm not going to make it easy for you to send me to prison. I'm not doing this. I didn't do that. Don't even say you didn't do the crime. I'm telling you, don't even deny it. Here's a good example. I had a murder case, and uh, the defendant. He agreed to talk to the police. He didn't confess. He he, but he invoked midway in the interrogation. It's called selective invocation. There's a doctrine called the selective invocation doctrine, and what that says, which is what Miranda says, is you can assert the right to remain silent midway in the interrogation, and the interrogation must stop, and or your right to attorney, in midway in the interrogation, and the police have to get the lawyer for you. Well, he selectively invoked. Midway in the interrogation, when they asked him a, a certain question, and the police ceased questioning him. At trial, he got on the witness stand. You, this is why you better you you better be careful if you opt to testify at trial. We challenged the prosecutor used his silence midway in the interrogation to impeach something he told the jury. That nailed that guy. And keep in mind, he didn't confess to the murder. But that it gave the jury suspicion that, well, you probably did do the murder because you didn't tell, like the prosecutor said, why didn't you tell the police that when they were interrogating you? Why did you tell the jury something different? We challenged that. We said that violated his right, to, his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. The case law is clear that he, you know, it was a selective invocation. The courts, we went all the way to the, we went all the way to the Sixth Circuit and each, each court denied relief and said, that's not the way the prosecutor used it. They didn't use it as substantive evidence of his silence. Instead, they used it to impeach him because he did tell the jury something differently. He didn't, he didn't tell the, he did, he invoked, but he, but at trial, he was ready to tell everything he knew. The result of that, the solution to that is, if you're going to give the police any statement, you better be careful if you, if you're going to testify at trial, because if you selectively invoke, it can be used to impeach you. You And a lot of guys, they want to testify. You know, they, they want to get on the stand and testify. And they're angry because their lawyer is giving them the best advice. I advise you not to do this because, you know what, they're going to impeach you with A, B, C, and D. No, I want to get up there and testify. I want to tell, I want to tell my story. Okay, but here, then when you do, this is what happened to this young man. And again, he didn't confess to the murder. He said just enough, and he selectively invoked at a critical point, at a critical point during the interrogation that the jury was satisfied that, yeah, he did it and they convicted him. The solution is don't talk to the police, especially when you're in custody, especially when you're in custody. 
not only in your living room or in your car, when you're in custody, don't talk. You cannot outsmart the police. Say nothing. You can't talk your way out of this. And I'm get I get tired and I get frustrated. I have some I have seen some cases where I open up the file, there's a confession in there or there's some statements in there. And I get so upset because it made now it's make it's, it's made my job hard. And I know the trial attorney had a hard time because guess what? I look in the file and I see there was a Walker hearing on the voluntariness of the confession. Okay. That didn't that didn't win. So on the at the appellate level, the burden gets higher. The burden is now on the defendant to show that the trial court erred. And a lot of people don't understand the it, it, it takes a lot of skill, a lot of work to undo all this when you just should not have confessed or should not have said anything. Say nothing but confirm your identity. That's all you have to do. Don't let them bring you a cigarette. Don't let them promise you. They, and like Hugo said, police can, cannot make, can, police cannot legally promise you a deal. They're going to come in that cell and tell you we'll strike a deal with you. Be aware of that. Only the prosecution can strike a deal with you. And guess what? The courts have held that police can lie a little bit and can use shenanigans to get you con to confess. And there's nothing wrong with that. Here's another, here's a perfect example. You can be in, you're, you're in, an, you're in the interrogation room. Your co-defendant is in the next room. And they can tell you, you might as well tell us everything you know, because your buddy's in the next room spilling everything. He's spilling his guts on you. And then you start talking. That was not an illegal, that's not an illegal, an illegal confession. So just don't, you can't talk your way out of it. Say nothing to the police. Say nothing. It'll make the lawyer's life easier. <laughs> and your chances of at least getting found not guilty are better because a confession is one more piece in the prosecutor's prosecutor's arsenal to get you convicted. Yeah. Wow, this is great. This is some good information. Um, <laughs> Attorney Hugo Matt, does this make your job any easier? Could it make your job easier? Well, if I had Brother Sanders, Abdullah, Tia Little John, <laughs> and uh, Jay Love on a jury, hell yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but absent that, it'll make it easier if it helps educate people. And I want to say this. I'm all in withholding police and judges and prosecutors accountable and legislators accountable. Mm -hmm. But I'm also all in on holding us accountable. Yeah. You see, we as black people, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We as black people as a group tend to want to avoid jury trials and being up there in in the in the criminal justice system and and i've said it before black people are the most uh enigmatic americans on the face of the earth we're the only ones that were kidnapped and brought here against our will okay you know uh you know the chinese kind of came against their will but yes and no but what i'm saying they, they certainly weren't enslaved and what i'm saying is in our effort to become American, we have put on ourselves the attributes thinking that we are the quintessential Americans. In other words, I'm so busy. You know, you know, I got to look after the kids. I got my job. You know, I don't have time to get down and have my day taken up on no jury duty. I got things to do. We buy into that mantra, not realizing that by doing that, we are aiding and abetting and financing our own demise. 
because what mm -hmm. Edwards said was, was was exactly right. You only the only thing where we're talking about your peer, where your peers is with that quote unquote jury system. And if you eliminate yourself from that jury pool, um, you know, because well, I I just I just don't feel like being bothered. Well, the only answer I have for you is continued genocide because you are deliberately removing yourself from a check and balance. You need a unanimous jury to convict somebody in the United States of America. Your vote could be the one vote to hang that jury up. I remember a movie starring uh, Henry Fonda called 12 Angry Men. And I, I, I remember they, they remade that movie, okay, where these people were all in for convicting this, I believe it was a Puerto Rican man, I believe, of, of, of murder, you know, and it was like 11 to 1, 11 to 1. And one man said, wait a minute, let's take a look at this. And he had enough courage to say, you know, let's take a look at the evidence, you know, and, and this and what have you. And it turned out ended up being an acquittal in that case. So when we let ourselves get to the point of saying we have the luxury of absenting ourselves from the jury system when we know we should be there, we are aiding and abetting our own genocide. And the result is you're going to get a mostly white jury stacked against African-American defendants. We saw that when they eliminated recorder's court and they combined it with Wayne County Circuit Court. Yeah, right, right. And, exactly and this, right. this was the result. And I got to tell you, I, 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 how do I say this? I have no respect for the jury system. And looking at some of these cases where these people, I know these guys are innocent. Even without the new evidence, I'm, I, it blows my mind. How did this jury even convict this guy on the old evidence? There was so much reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. It had, you had this poor African-American, he's you know, poor by his standards, living standards, in front of, the, at the mercy of a mostly all-white jury in Wayne County. The only conclusion I can draw from that is they didn't give a damn about throwing this African-American life away. Right. They didn't pay attention to the judge's instructions on reasonable doubt because if they did, they would have found him not guilty. I got a case right now, and I want to mention I can't mention the defendant's name is on appeal. There was so much, there was no physical evidence, there was no confession, nothing but a, a but a, a disgruntled ex-girlfriend's testimony, if you will, who recanted. But the physical evidence pointed to someone else. So I'm thinking to myself, how did this jury convict this man? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I I I just it is. It, it, I get frustrated that jurors are not. They don't care. They just convict. They convict on sensational evidence, racial evidence. Right. You know, they do, and I, 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 I just you know, and I read the judge's instructions that he that the judge gave to the jury. You know, the definition of reasonable doubt. You know, it has to be more than just you know. It, Oh my God! I'm thinking to myself, but there was all this case was 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 loaded with reasonable doubt. Yeah. So you their hope biases they, they convict on their biases. They do. They <laughs> do. And this was the, this was the, the the subtle racism behind eliminating recorder's court after the Malice Green verdict. Wow. And Hugo Mack raised a very good point that this is why our community we need us we need to get involved more in the judicial process and, and and sit ourselves on that jury to bring some balance and some fairness to it, because what's happening is, you know, the jury of your peers it ends up being a mostly white all white jury from out, 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 outside Wayne County determining your fate because mm -hmm. a lot of us we don't take the jury 
uh, civic duty seriously. We don't, we don't want to be bothered. You know, we throw away those jury questionnaires. Yeah. That's, not good, that's not a good attitude to have. It's, it's just, it's not. Edward? There, I mentioned a case here on your show once before. There's a young kid, uh, a formerly young kid that I knew. He was a, a, a Puerto Rican kid uh, um, that's from, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, um, well, in any case, he was convicted out of Oakland County. They convicted him for um, murder. He pled, they charged him with first degree murder, convicted him for second degree murder. Subsequently to his conviction and, and sentence and put in prison, the prosecutor took and went and arrested two um, other individuals for the same murder. Their defense was, was that you already have someone in prison for this crime. Someone has already um, been convicted in the sentence. The prosecutor's response was, was that that kid didn't commit the crime. He only said he did. They gave that information to this kid and his attorney. They took an appeal to case. The prosecutor argued. We we never said the kid killed the kid, um, person. The kid did. He said he killed the person. So, and, and you would think that the Michigan Supreme Court would have reversed the case. They only took an order the case to be remanded back down for evidentiary hearing. This kid, again, because he wouldn't wait, he took a plea bargain to get out of prison. I reached out to him just a few weeks ago, and I took and brought to his attention that the prosecutor, the office or the prosecutor in Oakland County done changed, and that they now have a conviction and integrity unit. And I told him, even though he's at home, he should be willing to go before that um, conviction integrity unit and argue his case, not just simply because of himself, but to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. This case is the case that I'm going to follow up on. I, I, I became aware of his case when we both were in prison. I advised him against taking the plea, but he, he wanted out of prison. And you can't blame anybody that wanted out of prison. This was a child. He was put in a youth home, taken from a youth home and put in an adult system. The only thing that they had was the evidence that came out of his own mouth. This kid only took a stick or a pipe or something and he put it through the fence and hit a corpse. And he read, he said that he seen something come out of the body. And so he took and went to telling other people in the neighborhood that he killed this guy. The guy was dead when he happened upon the, the deceased. He was already deceased. But he ran around the neighborhood telling everybody he committed the crime. And that's how he got in the custody of the police. Mm -hmm. And when they asked him about it, he confessed it to it. And that's how he went to prison. Okay? You don't need to take and be guilty if you admit to something. Mm -hmm. Your omission is enough. You done, you done took and satisfied the proof of the prosecution. So it's not a matter of whether or not it's true. That's a that's a, 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 a facade that we all believe that if, if you say you've done it, then you've done it. You know, if if um if they got a confession from you then you have to be guilty no you don't have to be guilty no you don't have to be guilty in fact there is a, a u.s supreme not a u.s supreme court case but there's a federal case to say that you can be you can be innocent and in prison the only criteria is whether or not you had a fair trial 
I haven't been able to wrap my head around that one. Okay. They said an innocent person can actually go to prison. <laughs> he just yeah. you know, he just had to have a fair trial. I haven't I haven't been able to take it on dissect that one. I don't know what that means. Donald yeah. Trump might know what it means. Yeah. Justice Scalia knew what that meant. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and you know, you know, Edward and Abdul. Not only can you be sent to prison if you're actually innocent but had a fair trial, you can and will be executed as yeah. long as you have had a fair trial. Right. Yeah. That I remember. That was a dissent. Justice Scalia said one time. He it was he was so callous about it that as long as the defendant had a fair trial. Even if his victim matter. walks into the courtroom and it's obvious she wasn't she wasn't killed, nothing stops the state from executing. I right. thought to myself, you callous. <laughs> I thought a lot of things. But what about due process of law? What about due process of law, which is it, which is in the federal and state constitution? So due process would seem to require you give this person a new trial if there's evidence of his innocence, if for no other reason. But this is that's what that was the example Justice Scalia gave, and, I'm and so I thought to myself, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> what, what, that's, Harvard Law that's, grad would say this, huh? Right, but that's how so many in innocent people are today, locked up. It doesn't matter as long as that trial was fair. Which is it, why it's not up to them to prove your innocence. It's up to you. <laughs> Oh yeah, after you now there, there there's a yeah, after you have been found can after you've been convicted, the burden is on the defendant. This is what this is what all these, you know, newly discovered evidence, all these motions for new trial is all about. The burden is no longer on the prosecution. Right. Once you've been convicted, and you the burden I understand the burden should be on you to prove your innocence. But if you have proved your innocence and they continue fighting your case like they did for Devontae Devonte Sanford for eight years. Mm -hmm. That becomes so outrageous that you you just want a revolution of the judicial system here because you, how can you justify this with the mountain of evidence of someone's of this young man's innocence? How do you how did you how did you justify fighting his appeal for eight years? Because and I, and, the, the injustice is intentional, right? Until 2016, when she ultimately. And she still wouldn't confess his innocence. My God, it's, it's psychological warfare. She just mm -hmm. let him go and said, oh, I'm, you know, because of police misconduct. So, yeah, you know, they lied about the sketch. I'm going to let him go. So, but why did you put Sergeant Russell on your Giglio list who, for the reason that he got Devontae to bogusly confess? Why did you land Sergeant Russell on the Giglio list? Because she knew the boy's confession was false. Yeah. During eight years while she fought to keep him in prison. And I, that's only innocence case I ever worked on. That's why I, 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 I beat it so much. And But anyway, back to my point. But yeah, the burden is on the defendant to prove his or her innocence after they've been found guilty. I, mm -hmm. I, I agree with that and I accept that. But when they come forth with evidence of their innocence and you still want to, you, you still fight to keep them in prison, that's where I have a problem with that. Because right. the prosecutor has a duty to confess innocence as well as convict the guilty. Yeah. This was a great um, conversation, and I don't even know if we got through half of the stuff that you wanted to talk about. Well, I think we did. We pretty much covered the book. <laughs> but we can always do a, a part two mm -hmm. of, a, of Miranda Rights and Terry Stocks and just have this conversation because, I mean, again, 
the majority of encounters are traffic stops. And so you guys have to understand why you're out here in the summer, you're enjoying yourself, to understand your rights. To understand your rights is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Mr. Abdul. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, and and it's good to be uh, to see you all again. And um, I hope everyone has an enjoyable, safe summer. And yeah, yeah. Um, we're living in some very troubling times. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know where this war with Ukraine will go. We'll all be here tomorrow. You know, it's, there, there's greater dangers out there than we can imagine. We live in our comfort zones here. But I've been keeping up with that and with Putin moving his nuclear weapons. Um, this guy is, I think, if he's back in the corner, none, you know, none of us may be here tomorrow. Yeah. Go ahead, Tia. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful for everyone this evening. And uh, Jay, I, you guys, I really think that we need a class that... Um, that we need a, a conference just on this information alone because it's ignorance that keeps us where we are. The other thing is I just want to encourage people to get a clear understanding of the definition of just and fair. So when you walk into that courtroom, you got to ask yourself, are you walking into what is just and fair? When you're being pulled over, is, are you already at just and fair? Just and fair is not happening unless you have just and fair people in position. Positions. And we don't. So it's not going to be just. It's not going to be fair. And they're not going to care because poverty is criminalized here in America. Mm -hmm. You're already at a disadvantage. And like, <laughs> like Attorney Mack was talking about, you know, sizing you up when those police officers pull you over, they already know it's easier to pull somebody over who's who's already trying to make it and make them accountable because they cannot and they may not have the power, the economic power or the confidence to retaliate. Yeah. And you know what? If we don't start getting them in their pockets time and time and time again, we won't see change. We have to economically impact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going back to Sean King again when he said we have to, we're going to have to get radical and do something different. Mm -hmm. We can't just continue to, you know, do the same old things. We have to think outside of the box. But also, we have to be knowledgeable. And you have to know how, you know, be educated on these things. Because when you go to court, you're like, I, I didn't know that or whatever. That's it's mm -hmm. not an excuse. Mm -hmm. The judge is not going to, you know, have no empathy because you didn't know. The Lord, the prosecutor definitely is not going to have any empathy because you didn't know. The police officers don't have any empathy because you don't know. So educate yourself, educate your family members, understand, you know, when to speak and when not to speak and when to stop speaking. And can I add something to that? With this, with this information age we're living in, yeah, we need to stop being able to go on 
you know, Craigslist. We're, we're, all of us know how to use Facebook and social media, but a lot of the stuff that we covered and, and still stuff that can be covered, you can just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> and and give and just Google this stuff and just soak this knowledge in for your own benefit. Yeah. Instead of waiting until the time that you're in those handcuffs. And like mm-hmm. you said a moment ago, Jay Love, you're walking in court and say, Oh, I didn't know I had all these rights. I didn't, mm-hmm. oh my God, what am I gonna do? I didn't know these things. Well, Google was there. Mm-hmm. There's some, there's some Harvard, there's some there, there's some law reviews you can read. You if you got time to spend, you know, I'm not targeting anyone in particular, but people in general got time to be on social media. But yeah. not to educate themselves, that's not, I, I don't buy that. Right. Because you don't need a law degree to know to keep your mouth shut when the police come and talk to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't need a law degree to know what the right to remain silent means. It means just that. Right. Don't deny it. Don't admit it. Don't say nothing. Right. Yeah. Attorney Hugo Matt. I would remind you all of this. Okay. <laughs> Miranda versus... Arizona, man's name was Ernesto Miranda, by the way, mm-hmm. um, a, a thug by all accounts, mm-hmm. but a man that still had rights by all accounts, okay? So uh, that decision is approximately 56 years old, mm-hmm. okay? okay. I remember when I was in high school, they came, this U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision called Roe versus Wade. Just as Roe versus Wade is a Supreme Court decision, which is on the cusp of being reversed, don't you think for one minute, one minute, with the proper mindset on the U.S. Supreme Court, the Miranda versus Arizona cannot be reversed? Don't mm-hmm. think for one minute, okay? You see? And in terms of protections via executive mm-hmm. orders, executive orders are only as good and as long as the president is in office. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump came and eliminated dozens, dozens yes. of orders issued by Barack Obama, thereby eliminating people's rights. So when you have a Congress, and yes, we, we can certainly want to move on a state level, like some are trying to do now with the woman's right to choose, but for sweeping change, we need federal, not just state. We yeah. need federal protection. Black people have always been dependent on federal action, not state action. State action is the one that gave us the militias, all right? The uh, Jim Crow. The, the slave catcher, Jim Crow, mm-hmm. Black Code. Those are state actions that did that. So what I'm saying to you is, as long as we continue to let these politicians, especially those that come into our neighborhood at election time, and, and, and have a face that looks like ours, standing in front, saying, vote for me, and not hold them accountable for doing something in terms of the John Lewis bill, in terms of George Floyd bill, mm-hmm. like they did in terms of woman's right to choose, push that issue, mm-hmm. we will continue to suffer the same fate that we're mm-hmm. suffering right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Edward. I'm going to um, try to leave your audience with something that is useful as opposed to my opinion. And, and that is, is that we have a national uh, federal holiday coming up. And um, so during this holiday period, they're going to take in um, the institute this policy, um, click them, you know, what they tell me, the seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Click them or tick them. Click them or tick them. 
So they're going to be looking at you as a driver in a car to see whether or not you actually have the seat belt on or the passenger. And there are valid reasons for doing that because of the number of people that die in accidents unnecessarily because they don't wear their seat belts. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be very preoccupied in looking into your vehicle during this holiday um, because people particularly drink during this time will have other forms of intoxicants while they're operating these vehicles. So you're going to be under scrutiny before, during, and just after this period. So mm-hmm. some of the things that we are talking about could be very useful, including you clicking it. You know, lock yourself in mm-hmm. and don't operate that vehicle while intoxicated. Because yeah. mm-hmm. of our loved ones are taken take. by individuals that are operating um, automobiles. In fact, more people die from accidents than from guns, even though our culture mm-hmm. tells us otherwise or the information we get from our, our daily media mm-hmm. otherwise because it's is 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 part of a propaganda and mm-hmm. sensationalism. There's no sensationalism in the person that runs through the stop sign That's while right. they're drunk. But if um, um one or two people or a number of people shoot each other with guns, that's highly sensational. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's what they focus on. But both of them cause death. But one of them caused mm-hmm. death in larger numbers, and more people die on car mm-hmm. accidents than any um firearms. So remember that. So they're going to be looking at your vehicles. So drive safe, be sober, mm-hmm. and take and buckle up. That's yeah. not my opinion. Okay. And yes, yeah, I'm not an attorney. I did play one while I was in prison, though. But I'm not <laughs> an attorney. Yes, thank you. That's good advice. Jake, thank can you please, if I may, uh, add on to what he said with that experience yes. with the Ferndale Police on May 4th? Yes. I got pulled over at 12.45 p.m., 12.45 at night by Ferndale Police on May 4th, and I know my car was profiled. They said I failed to yield. They never gave me a ticket. They let me go. But in addition to the driving safe and, you know, the importance of clicking it and all this other stuff, let me suggest to everybody, if you're pulled over, you know, keep your hand on the steering wheel. If you're going to reach for anything, let the officer know. And that's this is what I did. You know, he, he asked for the registration and the driver's license. I said, it's in my back pocket. May I reach for it? Because they're, they, 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 they'll panic if you start making gestures, right? And if you're pulled over at night, turn on the dome light on your car. Mm-hmm. Immediately, immediately when I saw he was pulling me over, I turned on that dome light because I want to see in my car and I want him to see, you know, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not in a situation that I know I'm going to win, right? I know he can't. He doesn't have to Mirandize me and stuff. And the encounter, for the most part, it was pleasant. He didn't write me a ticket, and I believe that's because he knows he was bullshit. He know he didn't pull me over because I failed to yield. He saw me turning from Ferndale into Detroit. I was in. A, I was. I was driving a, a Charger sport car. He thought I was African American because keep in mind it was at night. He didn't know what color I was. So mm. I, okay. And he asked where I was going, where I was coming from, and I said I'm just coming from my office in Bloomfield Hills. I'm heading on my way to Detroit. He said. You live in Detroit? And I thought, yeah, I'm thinking to myself, is there something wrong with that? <laughs> I, I didn't tell him this, but I, I, know, I know where he's going with this. So that's what mm-hmm. let me, what he, right. thought, he thought he had a catch. Okay? Yeah. So just yeah. some common sense tips. If you're pulled over at night, do, do like I did, turn that dome light on, first of all. Yeah. Before the officer gets up to your car, keep your hand on the steering wheel and you know, keep the conversation short with the officer. Don't argue with him. I know, even if they're, if they're jerks, 
And before you reach for your, your driver's license and you got to go in the glove compartment, let the officer know it's in the glove compartment. May I, may I reach for it? It's my license in my back pocket. May I reach for it? Yeah. And, and that encounter was, went well, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure I was profiled. Right. And but it's about I, energy you know, too, because if you're aggressive, then they're going to be more aggressive. You're not going to win in that situation. Right. So just take control of of your situation by taking control how you respond. Right. They only can operate how you respond. Right. Even I, even in an aggressive situation, if you still remain calm, and sometimes it will diffuse. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Diffuse. And th that was pretty intimidating because it was at 12, 12 at night. I'm the only one in the car. I have no witnesses. Right. Right. And I'm th I thought it was Detroit police who pulled me over because I got pulled over as soon as I crossed into Detroit. But then I realized it was a Ferndale police officer when he came in. in that, and I said, good evening, officer. What seems to be the problem? He said, you failed to yield when you made that Michigan U-turn. I said, oh, I'm sorry, but I thought I did yield, but so be it. So he said, you know, he asked me the routine questions. Do you have a driver's license? He asked me if I had a weapon in the car. I didn't say, you got you didn't mean me my Miranda rights because I know he doesn't have to do that, right? This is a stop. Right. And I said, no, I don't. And so... When he asked for the registration, I said, this is a lease. I'm leasing from Enterprise. I don't have the paper registration, but the lease is on my email and my cell phone. I, can I reach for it and show you? And he said, yes. So I showed him the lease and he ran. He did his checks and he let me go. He said, I'm not going to write you a ticket. I'm going to give you a break. And I thought to myself, it's because you know I didn't fail to yield. Mm -hmm. He thought I was African-American because I'm driving a Charger sport car. He didn't know what color I was until he walked up to my car. Right. So, yes, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I appreciate you. If you want to learn more about the justice for Gerard and, the wrongful and his wrongful conviction story, please go to um, www.change.org slash justice for Gerard. Please share and sign the petition. And I want to thank you for joining us and see you next Friday for turning a moment into a movement.